We're in a, a series, usually, um, if you've been at Grace for a while, you know I teach uh, what's called expositorily through books of God's Word, and uh, we have taken a break a couple times in the last uh, year or so to focus in on what we're calling a spiritual practice, one of those aspects of how Jesus lived his life that seem to be significant and important for him, realizing that if we want to experience the life of Christ, we probably need to start to seek to live the lifestyle of Christ, what he focused on and and what he did. And we looked first and foremost at prayer. And then we looked at community, what Chris and Clay talked about this morning. Then we looked at silence and solitude. Clay's a big fan of that. And uh, now we're, we're looking at Scripture. And uh, we focused on uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given, breathed out by God. And it is useful in our lives for many things. And then we begin to look at those things in our culture that seem to be a hang-up for especially non-Christians and a pushback against taking God's Word seriously. And the first we looked at last week was the law and how we interpret the law and, and how we look at all of those Old Testament laws that seem a little bit crazy, a little bit outdated, and how, how we as believers can focus on that. And this morning I wanted to look at science and Scripture and how they relate together. So this is going to be a little bit more of a lecture than a normal uh, message that I give, but uh, forgive me for that. You can boot me out of the church after this if, that, if that's your inclination. But... Uh, This is an area that kind of was really deeply personal in my life. I grew up in a Christian family. Um, One of my older brothers that I looked up to most became a doctor, and that was where I wanted to go as well. So I was very much into science um, throughout high school. And uh, the the Christianity I grew up in was more of a, this is exactly how you have to believe the Bible says all things were created in this way or that way. And it was kind of an either or. Either I believe that this creation account was the gospel creation account. And if I don't, I believe what science says. And, and I wrestled with that a lot. And uh, I looked, and you know, at that time they were pulling ice cores out of the Antarctic that were 130,000 years of kind of cake-like layers where they could pull, you know, gases out of those, you know, and determine what the atmosphere was like at that. And I'm thinking, well, I've been told that I have to view Scripture in this particular way, and it's six to ten thousand years old, and and so how do I put those together? And at that same time, there was a moral pull in my life not to want to follow Jesus. So those two things were a potent mix in my life. And looking at science and saying, yeah, Scripture, just, it's just kind of crazy. And that allowed me kind of the excuse to, to walk away from God. And I'm not saying there weren't answers to those questions, but to me that was something that was significant in a couple wasted years of my life as I sought to follow my own desires. And I take blame fully for that. But uh, this relationship between science and Scripture was one of the things that allowed me to justify kind of walking away from God um, for a while. I just listened yesterday to a debate between uh, Richard Dawkins. Um, You know him. He's the kind of really anti, not atheist, but anti-theist. And uh, Francis Collins, who uh, directed the Human Genome Project, who mapped the human gene. Brilliant scientist. Francis is a strong believer. Richard Dawkins is not a strong believer. And these guys looking at the same data have come to various conclusions about how science and, and Scripture 
relate. And uh, it's just been interesting for me to kind of process through this in my own life and come to a place of this is how I see Scripture and science relating. And I want to start at the get-go to say this is where I've come out. If you're at a different place where I am this morning, I'm totally okay with that. I believe that God could do anything in any way possible. He could create everything in an instant. In fact, Philo, the Jewish philosopher, thought that God created outside of, he's outside of time. Clement, the Christian, early Christian church father, thought the same thing, that he, the days were given there in Genesis kind of as an order of priority, not in terms of seven 24-hour days. But the reality is that you, you press into this stuff and it's kind of hard to comprehend sometimes. And my concern in looking at this stuff is not that you adopt my point of view, but that we get to the place where we're bringing our kids and they're heading off to college and and they're given this, I think, a false dichotomy between you either got to believe this about the Bible and what it says or you believe science. And they look at science and they say, wow, that's verifiable, it's factual, so this is the way I'm going to lean. So I just want to give you kind of my perspective on how these things fit together and share my view at this point in time. If you want to come up and we can debate these things, I'm totally open to that. But just this is where I have come out at this place in my life in wrestling through a lot of these things through my time as a Christian. And I've gone through probably almost every interpretation of Genesis. I began believing it was seven 24-hour days, and then I said, yeah, how do I fit the age? And then it's like, okay, when God creates, he creates stuff with the appearance of age. If you look at Adam right after he was created, and I believe Adam was a special creation, you'd look at him and you'd say, whoa, that dude is, what, 18 years old, 16 years old, we're not sure how old he was, but obviously he had been through puberty at that point in time, and so you'd look at him and say, he has that appearance of age. So for a while, that was really convincing to me, that was the view I held, and then more and more I see, okay, there's these billions of light years, and so God would have had to create not only the stars, but the stream of light, and then he would have to create events that happen in that stream of light and all those kind of things and so that's not where I am right now but again to me as we look at this stuff we need to be really gracious with our brothers and sisters and unfortunately I've found that that's not always been the case in the church and to that end I want to start with kind of a cautionary tale to begin with in 1543 uh, a guy named Copernicus wrote this on the revolutions of celestial orbs and Copernicus had the audacity to believe in what's called a heliocentric solar system, that the planets revolved around the sun. He wasn't quite as interested in getting into it with the church, and so there's a guy that came about you know, 50, 100 years later named Galileo. And in 1632, he published Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems. And in that Galileo presented his scientific understanding of how the solar system was organized. And it, too, was a heliocentric view of the solar system, not a geocentric view of the solar system. And the church was up in arms. In June 22, 1633, a year slightly after this was published, the church condemned Galileo as a heretic, even though he was a believer, (laughs) because he dared say that the sun was the center of the universe and that the earth moved. Listen to this. This is from 1 Chronicles 16, 29 and 30. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. 
Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Ecclesiastes 1.5 The sun rises and the sun sets and it hurries back to where it rises. Psalm 93 The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as His belt. Yet, Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Psalm 104, 5. He set the earth on its foundations so that it shall never be moved. Now the church reads those passages and it's like, duh, it's really clear. The earth does not move, right? This is, I'm taking this. This is the view. How else could you take those scriptures, right? And that either makes us laugh or makes us cry because we look at that and say, obviously it's talking in metaphorical language there, right? That the earth is immovable in terms of because of the gravity of the sun and the earth's rotational force and the gravity of the earth. There's a stability in the earth that we reside on. So that's what it's talking about. But that's us. After Apollo sends back that beautiful picture from the moon of the, this globe that's sitting out in the midst of space. But back then, they didn't have that understanding. And so they read those scriptures and they say, this is, this, is, this, is, this is heretical. But since then, we've come to understand that we need to take those passages in a non-literal way. We need to view them as metaphorical. And I bring this up just to remind us that when we interpret scripture, I believe that God's word is inerrant, but I believe that my interpretation of God's word is not inerrant. And we need to have a lot of humility as we approach some of these challenging topics. I'm going to read you a quote from Augustine. And this is, he lived 354 to 430. So this is before evolution, it's before Darwin, it's before any of those debates were raging. So he's not trying to capitulate to the science of our age at all. But this is what he says. He says, usually, even a non-Christian knows something about the earth, the heavens, and this knowledge he holds to, uh, to be certain from reason and experience. Now it is a disgraceful and dangerous thing for a non-Christian to hear a Christian presumably giving the meaning of Holy Scripture talking nonsense on these topics. And we should take all means to prevent such an embarrassing situation in which people observe vast ignorance in a Christian and laugh it to scorn. If they find a Christian mistaken in a field which they themselves know well, and hear him maintaining his foolish opinions about our scriptures, how are they going to believe those scriptures in matters concerning the resurrection of the dead, the hope of eternal life, the kingdom of heaven, when they think their pages are full of falsehoods and on facts which they themselves have learned from experience in the light of reason. So you hear what Augustine's saying. If Christians are proposing a view that those that are in these fields look at and say, That's, there's just no way that that is possible. We've got to be really careful because if they discount our science that may be flawed because of their science that they know is true, then they're going to write off all of the gospel. Just a cautionary tale then. So after the church ate a big piece of humble pie, I want to give you a few concepts that help me as I wrestle with putting science and scripture together. First, for God's word to communicate, it has to be able to be understood by its original 
audience. And we've talked about that. The importance of context, right? The importance of context as we seek to understand Scripture. And usually we talk about the context of the verses around it. That's really important. But also we talked last week of the context of culture in which that Scripture was originally delivered. That that Scripture was delivered in a day and time that had a pre-scientific worldview, right? This was before telescopes, before microscopes. And God is delivering his message to this culture. Let me put a hypothetical situation before you. Imagine you're a couple, right? You've got one child, she's a three and a half year old daughter, and the couple gets, the wife gets pregnant. How is the couple going to explain to the three and a half year old daughter that she's going to have an ultrasound, going to have a little baby brother? Are they going to sit down with the three and a half year old and say, you know, okay, this is how it works, and go through a biology lesson and say, you know, there's 26 chromosomes here, adenine, guanine, cytosine, thymine, those are the building blocks of DNA and how they all work together, and this is how it's all happening, and probably not, right? Why? Because that three-and-a-half-year-old would just look like, oh, what are they going to say? Hey, you're going to have a baby brother. God is making a baby in mommy's tummy, right? That's what you're going to say. Does that communicate truth there? Are the parents at that point in time lying to that child? I don't think so. They're not giving all of the explanation of exactly how this happens. Why? Because a three and a half year old does not understand advanced concepts in biology and all of that kind of stuff. So the desire of the parent is to communicate a joyful message to that child saying, you're going to have a baby brother, and you're going to watch your mommy's tummy get bigger and bigger, and God's going to make that baby in your mom. To me, that is, in one sense, what God is doing in the Old Testament when he communicates truth in a scientific way. Listen to what John Calvin says, not a flaming liberal or progressive. The Holy Spirit had no intention to teach astronomy, and in proposing instruction meant to be common to the simplest and most uneducated persons he made use by Moses and the other prophets of popular language the Holy Spirit would rather speak childishly than unintelligibly to the humble and unlearned to see what he's saying in another place Calvin says the Holy Spirit has to lisp when he speaks to us you recognize God is an infinite being right Anytime he communicates truth to us, he has to dumb that down. And I think it's much more of a distance between God and me than between me and a three-and-a-half-year-old child trying to explain a pregnancy. This is what Augustine said again. He says, Nowhere in the Gospel do we read that the Lord said, I am sending you a paraclete who will teach you about the course of the sun and the moon. For he wanted to make Christians, not mathematicians. Now, Tim Royap is not here this morning, but he would maybe debate that the fact he can't be a Christian and a mathematician. I know he's a chemist, but I think math is his real love. But the reality there of God is communicating truth to us in a way that we can understand. And the purpose of Scripture is not to give us a scientific textbook. So recognize that, to me, for Scripture to be able to communicate to those initial people that it was given to in Moses' day and age, it had to be done in a way that those people would understand. So that leads me 
to the second point, that God doesn't download a perfect scientific understanding before he communicates theological truth. He accommodates his revelation to the, quote, science of the writers and the audience. And as I thought about this, how else could God do it? Okay, say that, okay, to communicate this theological truth, God's going to have to download, if we're going to say that this has to be all completely with what we believe right now, he's going to have to download and increase scientific understanding into the person that he's inspiring to write scripture. Okay? You can, you can say, okay, he could do that, right? But then what he would also have to do is he would have to download that same scientific understanding to the entire culture in which that person is writing for them to be able to understand the word of God. And then there's another problem with that view. What scientific understanding would he download? Would he download an Aristotelian view of a geocentric universe? Because for a lot of time people believe that. Would he download a Copernican view of a heliocentric universe? Or would he download a later view of science? All right, we are living in the 21st century and we're in these amazing times where quantum physics and all this stuff is telling us that you know the vast majority of the universe is dark matter and dark energy. I don't think hardly anybody understands this stuff. Maybe a few people in the world. And can we look at Genesis 1 and say, well, it doesn't say anything about dark matter and dark energy. That is an error. And if God did put a lot of stuff about dark matter and energy in there with me, in 21st century America, just be scratching my head and say, what is he talking about? Or would he say, oh, you know, based on quantum mechanics and relativity, actually time is relative, so talking about a beginning is not really 100% accurate, so I'm going to, it's like, no, God's got to communicate in a way that the people understand. And so I think as we look at scripture, we got to recognize that God was communicating to this pre-scientific people in the ancient Near East, and it was a very observational, phenomenological view of life, right? You look at life and you observe certain things through our naked eye. We cannot see more than what we can see right now, right? And so as you look at the Old Testament, you hear things like the sun rises and the sun sets and it hastens to the place that it rises in Ecclesiastes 1.5, and you look at that and say, is that scientifically accurate? No. In one sense, it's not. Do we throw out our Bibles? Because that's in there. The Hebrew language had no word for brain. Okay? So, when I'm called to love the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my strength, in Deuteronomy 6, is that an error? Because we know our heart, that's, that's not the place where I feel and think and make choices. It's just this pumping. What makes me think and feel is my brain. So what in the world's going on here? Is this a lie? It's interesting. You read that quote in the New Testament when it's included. The authors and Jesus includes mind in there as well. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you realize, okay, there's something called progressive revelation that God reveals more and more to people. And as we grow in our understanding, there's a deeper appreciation for some of this stuff. But it doesn't mean what he first communicated to those people was a lie. Because when he said heart, 
through his author to those people, what they understood was that's the, that's the core of who I am, right? In Proverbs 23, 16, it says this. My kidneys, literally, will exult when your lips will speak what is right. I don't know about you, but I have never heard any scientist say that the kidneys are the seat of emotion in a person, right? I've never said, oh, my kidneys are exulting. It's just, ah, that's just, that's nonsense. But we don't throw out scriptures because we realize that was their view at that time. It wasn't completely accurate, was it? But it was phenomenologically correct because we even say that today. What? Man, I heard that news and it was a what? Gut punch. It just hit me in the gut. Or I have a gut feeling about this, right? So what does that mean? It means we often experience emotions, even though they're generated here, we experience them in our gut. So when the Old Testament in this ancient Near East, in this pre-scientific context, feels that emotion, says, oh, that's, that's down here. That's, that's my kidneys, I guess. It was the same word used in sacrifice of taking that organ out of the animal and burning it on the altar. And we'd look at that and we'd say, well, that's mm, that. And people look at the Bible and say, oh, look at the Bible, it's full of errors. I don't think that's an error in Scripture. Why? Because I know that was the understanding of those people at that time. And if God had communicated something different based on our modern understanding, it wouldn't have communicated. Because that's how they thought. And God obviously chose not to correct all their misunderstandings before communicating theological truth to them. I don't think he could have. Like I was saying, what level of science does he need to communicate? And if it's perfect science of how he created everything and did everything, I think all of us would be like, mm, that's a little bit above my pay grade. I just don't understand that. Another area of this is what's called Old Testament cosmology. How folks in the Old Testament viewed the world. Phil, you have a slide up here. Here's a slide that uh, most scholars to say say this is the understanding that people in the Old Testament had of how the universe and the cosmos was put together. That there was kind of a, an earth below and then there was this solid kind of dome thinking the Truman show where the you know there's a solid dome there up above that was water and up above that was the heaven of heavens that when God allows it to rain he opens up the gates or the doors of heaven and that water comes down and God separates the land below into one place from all the waters and then the earth is established on foundations and it, and it has pillars and we, we look at this and say, wow, this is not at all what we know the world to be like. And it's interesting, in the last couple centuries there's been a lot of discoveries among other peoples of the ancient Near East, among the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Hittites, the Egyptians, all of them had this kind of view of how the cosmos was formed. So this seemed to be a common view of how the earth was put together. Listen to Genesis 1, 6 through 8. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And then this. Can you... Like him, spread out the skies hard as a cast metal 
mirror. That's from the book of Job 37.18. So there was this picture that there's the sky above, this Shemayim, the, the heavens or the, the atmosphere basically, but above that was this solid dome basically that kept the waters above from collapsing down onto the earth. And then the earth was taken out of the waters below and separated from the water, but that earth was laid on foundations and pillars that established it. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars." Proverbs 8.27, When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, and that word made firm, it's a matz, it means it was used of a tree growing hard or something really solid. When he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then this, praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens, you waters above the heavens. That's from Psalm 148. That's post-flood. A lot of people say, well, there was a vapor canopy above the earth, and then during the flood, all that collapsed and all that water came down. Well, this is after the flood, then the psalmist is still talking about the waters above. So I think this is just the ancient conception of the world there. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, the, all the fountains of the great deep birth burst forth, that waters from below, and the windows of the heavens were opened. Then later, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed, and the rain from the heavens was restrained at the end of the flood. So this idea that there's this water above this firmament that's hard as brass, and then God periodically will open the gates or the doors or the windows of heaven and that will come down as rain was just the view of the ancient Near East. That's how they looked at the world. And you can understand that from an observational view, right? You're on the land, you walk far enough and you get to a sea. So there's the land that's surrounded by these waters. And in the ancient concepts, there, there was this chaotic waters that God brought forth the land out of. And the Hebrew conception of creation is very different from a lot of these other worldviews, though there were some similarities. In some, you've got Marduk battling Tiamat and these two gods going at it and Marduk wins and then he breaks apart Tiamat and part becomes the earth and part becomes the heaven. Scriptures, there's no indication of that, right? That God just shows up. He's there in the beginning. There's no competition. There's nothing there. And then we have God creating this beautiful world and it says that God shows up and the Spirit was hovering on the face of the deep and out of that he, he creates this beautiful world and he brings, brings light and, and then the sun and the moon, they don't show up till the, the fourth day. It's like, well, how can you have light after not having a sun and then how does the earth stay in its orbit if there's not the gravitational pull of this, all that kind of stuff and is that what it's meant to communicate or is it meant to communicate these people who are coming out of Egypt where Ra was the sun god, right? And one of the gods, and God is saying, uh-uh, Ra's not even in the picture. Ra doesn't come till the fourth day. I'm the origin of light. I'm the light of the world. 
So you look at this, and when God brings his revelation into this world, he doesn't say, you know what, your conception of science and the universe is totally wrong. Let me, let me download a completely accurate picture of how the cosmos is ordered. No, he doesn't do that. He comes to the people and he uses language that they will understand to communicate. And we read that, and all of these things we take as metaphors, like pillars of the earth, foundations of the earth. The problem is those folks didn't take those as metaphors any more than the church in the 15th century and 16th century took that section of the earth not being moved as a metaphor. Why do we view it as a metaphor now? Because science has showed us that that's got to be a metaphor because we're on this earth spinning. And they thought about that and said, there's no way possible. Why don't I feel wind in my face if we're spinning and we're moving? You know, why am I not just flying off this planet if we're moving? It just doesn't make any sense. Well, Galileo and Copernicus were a little bit before this guy called Newton, and gravity wasn't even discovered yet, right? So they're looking at it, and from their perspective, it, this just makes sense. And you look at a person in the Old Testament, it's like, okay, I'm on this solid planet, I walk far enough, and I get to an ocean, you know, and I walk around there, and I dig down a little bit, and you know what? There's water. So there's got to be water below, right? And I look up, and I know at the ocean, ocean's blue, right? And I look up, and... The heavens are blue, but it's not the same as water, so there's got to be something that's supporting all this water above, and then God is above that water. So we look at that, and from our understanding, it's like, oh, that's all metaphor. We, we know that. Well, why do we know that? Because of discoveries since then. And there's some commentators who will say, well, the Jews knew that was metaphorical as well. Listen to a couple commentaries of Jewish rabbis. This is from 3rd Baruch, and it says, In appearing to them, this is talking about Babylon and the Tower of Babel, the Lord changed their languages. By that time, they'd built the Tower of 463 cubits high, and taking an auger, they attempted to pierce heaven, saying, Let us see whether the heaven is made of clay or copper or iron. Seeing, that, seeing these things, God did not permit them to continue, but struck them with blindness and confusion of tongues. Okay, this is a rabbinic commentary on the passage in Genesis there. And we're going to say, how does he know it? It's like 463 cubits. It's not in Scripture. That's not my point here. My point is they viewed the sky as either made of clay or copper or iron. It was hard. Then another one in the Babylonian Talmud. Let us build a tower, ascend to heaven, and cleave it with axes that its waters might gush forth. So again, this idea that there's this hard kind of canopy that's holding these waters in was just part of their understanding. And my point this morning is if God's going to communicate to these people, he's going to communicate in a way that they understand. And he's not going to download a 21st century or a 31st century view of science if Christ tarries and doesn't return till then into their minds. He's just going to communicate in a way that they would have to understand. So again, as I look at the early chapters of Genesis, I'm not a theistic evolutionist. I've got a big book on and gave to Clay on theistic evolution. I think there's a whole lot of problems with evolution. The main thing is where does the origin of all this information come from? To me, okay, I'll grant you biological evolution, but you tell me where all that information comes from for those mutations to take place initially. There's got to be a whole slew of that information for things even to start. And information is non-material. 
You look at, okay, you can get all those DNA bases and you put it all down and it goes together. That's great. That's strictly material. But you need an intelligence to put that stuff down in such a way that it can be coded and decoded and used to replicate a being. To me, I have seen no explanation of what's called chemical evolution, the ability to organize all this stuff in a way that makes sense so that biological evolution can start. You look at the fine-tuning of the universe, all these constants in the universe that if they're off by just a minute degree, then life would not exist. And it was interesting in the debate between Dawkins and uh, Collins, you know, Dawkins even admitted that is probably the one argument that could make him, he said, I'm not going to be a Christian, but maybe a deist to understand. You look at this like, like wow, this is, this is pretty amazing. And then to get out of that, a lot of modern scientists pos posit a multiverse. Because of inflation of the universe that's continuing to expand, they think, okay, periodically entire universes will pop out and maybe the, the constants in those are different. It's like, okay, maybe. You know, Hebrews says, by faith we believe God created everything out of nothing. That's true. I will hold to that. I can't go back and I can't prove that fact. I think what we see is very consistent with the Creator. But to me, by faith, they're also believing that there's this multiverse out there. And yeah, things are really, really precise in our universe, and it just seems so improbable. But if there are a zillion universes out there, maybe we're just the lucky ones to be in that one universe that has all these improbabilities. And you're saying, yeah, it's a possibility, but you know what? That's just as much a step of faith as my believing in a God that's an intelligent being, and I think it's actually more of a step of faith because you still have that ultimate, say, where does the multiverse come from? I believe in a being that's outside of space and time. So when you say, well, where did God come? When, when did God begin? It's like, no, God is. That's the definition of who God is. He's outside of space and time. So again, sometimes I think when we fight with non-Christians about specifics, about this is what scripture says about science, then to me we have to be really careful because we're starting with a premise that I don't know is actually logical. I think we can admit, hey, they had a pre-scientific view of the world. I don't think that makes them and makes scripture erroneous because of that. Because God's got to accommodate. So if you can explain to me how God can communicate in a scientific way for all generations and all eras to a people without accommodating to a particular culture, that to me is where I'd have a, question, a discussion with a non-believer. How could God even do that? And if he can't, then he's going to have to communicate in a way that would be understandable to that person at that time and even if their views are off he still can communicate truth even if the kidneys aren't the source of my emotions I can say I exult and whether it's the kidneys or my brain it's the reality that I'm exulting in something beautiful and something good and so this is kind of my I don't know polemic why do we always try to fight about Genesis 1 or why do we sideline people that have a slightly different view than us. And again, these views, there's several. We've got the young earth view, which is six 24-hour days. Do I believe God could create in that way? You bet I do. Do I believe that the Genesis 1 passage mandates that? No, I don't. That's my particular view. If you hold a six-day, 24-hour days, that's okay. There's the appearance of age view. Again, this is a view that I held for a long time. Now I look at it and it says, okay, now they're pulling out ice cores that are 800,000 years down. That's about as far down as they can go because when they go down that far, then the Earth's core heat starts to melt the ice. 
But now there's some places where, because of seismic shifts, the ice has been tilted up, and they say they've got samples down 2.7 million years based on argon dating and potassium dating. I don't know the science about that. You can talk to Tim to see if that's possible. But the reality is there seems to be this huge amount of age that we're just living around all the time. And to me, it's like, okay, would God design that in such a way? It may have some physical reason that it needs to be there. He certainly could have. There's the gap theory that between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, God created everything, and then God starts his creation activity in the days with stuff that's already there. So there may be a gap between when God created everything and then when he starts, they say, to form the formless and to fill the void. If you look at days 1 through 3, he's kind of forming things, and if you look at days 4 through 6, he's filling those things, corresponding days, and it's kind of interesting to look at how Genesis is organized. There's the day-age theory, that the days there were ages of time, and whether some people believe it was one day where there was this amazing activity of God in one 24-hour day, but then there's these huge gaps between. And you look at evolution, and Stephen Jay Gould is talking about punctuated equilibria. We have these times in evolution, supposedly, where you have this sudden appearance of all these forms, the Cambrian explosion, right? It just goes normal, and bam. And so it's like, well, maybe that would fit with that theory, that God enters into space and time and directs things in a particular way at a particular stage. It's a possibility. And then a guy named John Walton out of Wheaton, an evangelical scholar, views this more as a literary design, that in the old ancient Near East, oftentimes there were seven days of preparation before a god would enter the temple and be seated there on the throne. So that view is basically that these days it's God's preparation of all creation being kind of his cosmic temple. And the purpose there is that when God comes and rests on the seventh day, it's not like he checks out, but it's like a, a present coming to sit in the White House. Now he's here to rule and reign. He's created all things. So this idea that this is God saying, my desire is to be with my people. I want to be present among my people. And so this is more of a literary style than 24-hour days or days even in a way that we would conceive of them. It's a possibility as well. You look at Genesis 1, and it's not normal history, but it's not Hebrew poetry either. It's this kind of quasi, you know, neo-poetry kind of thing. That it's almost, but it's not fully. So to me, you could take it a couple ways. And again, to think if you're thinking, oh, Brett's just accommodating to our culture, look at him. Let me give you a few old Christians. I mean, Justin Martyr, old. End of first century, beginning of second century. He died for his faith. So I don't think he was progressive, denying the deity of Jesus Christ and what Jesus did. He viewed the days as long epochs, right? This is before Darwinian evolution, just looking at Scripture. I always talked about Clement, you know, he viewed these as kind of days in terms of priority. God prioritizing what's the highest priority. Obviously God resting at the end, but the highest creation is man. And that's beautiful. That's one of the huge differences between the Hebrew creation account and so many of the Middle Eastern creation accounts at that time. Man was created in the image of God, not to be a slave or servant of God. And on most of the other creation accounts, the guys are like, oh, we're really tired. We need to make some slaves. Okay, let's make people. They will be our slaves. That is not the creation account in Genesis. We are created in the image of God. We have tremendous worth and tremendous 
value. So that was Clement's idea that God's outside of space and time, so when he creates, it's just all going to be there in a timeless way. This is what Origen said. Now what man of intelligence will believe that the first, second, and third day and evening and morning existed without the sun, moon, and stars? So Origen's dissing on people that are taking a 24-hour view. I don't want to do that, but it's like, okay, this is back early Christianity. And finally, Augustine. As for the days, it is difficult, perhaps impossible, to think, let alone explain in words what they mean. But at least we know it is different from the ordinary day with which we are familiar. Again, these are all believers. Some of them went to their death for Jesus Christ and their adherence to the gospel. So to me, what are the takeaways here? First, that God's word was written to communicate theological truths in an understandable way to people living in a pre-scientific age. So don't attempt to make scripture a scientific textbook. That's not what it was designed to be. Also, don't toss it aside because it isn't. Ah, I don't understand this. Let's just throw it away. Second, to me, approach passages where current science and your interpretation of Scripture seem to collide with humility. And again, to me, remember Copernicus and Galileo and the church there. And again, I look at Scriptures and there has to be, to me, a specific creation of Adam and Eve. That seems to be assumed in the New Testament. Adam is in the genealogy in Luke of Jesus, so that's there, how that all worked out. I'm still working out in my own brain. And then third, be gracious and kind to fellow believers who may come to a different understanding of this than you. I was listening to some guys who said, you know, he had a professor that said, you get to these kind of passages, and he called them pipe and beer passages. Obviously from European context, okay, you got to put that. <laughs> but the reality is like, okay, Let's, let's sit down and let's relax and let's have a talk about what this possibly could mean. But also to understand that I cannot get that dogmatic about this stuff. Because as I look in the whole history of the church, there was difference of opinion about this stuff even before Darwin came on the scene. So to think that, you know, there's one solution to this. And I heard, this is one of the leading pastors in our country say, if you do not take a 24-hour literal view of Genesis 1, I don't know if you're a Christian. And to me, I just don't see the text mandating that type of approach. And I think that may set up a lot of people for this false dichotomy between I either believe science and what the data shows there, or I believe Scripture. What's it going to be? I don't think that's a choice that has to be made, to be honest. And again, as you differ with other people, Wrestle with the text, as we talked about in Sunday school. It is what should determine our view. And if that view is at odds with modern science, fine. The thing about science is it's constantly changing, right? What is science going to believe in 2020-22? I don't know. But probably something very different from now. And again, I don't think that God meant to communicate scientific understanding. He meant to communicate truth, that we are created in the image of God, that there's no competitor to God. God created everything as human beings. We're valuable and the pinnacle of God's creation. All those things are, are beautiful things and things we can hang on to. 
But let's not keep fighting about this stuff. And I think sometimes when we enter into these fights, especially with non-believers about this stuff, to take Augustine's comments seriously. That fighting about this, I don't think this is meant to be a scientific textbook. So when I enter into that, well, this should be a scientific textbook and it's all wrong. To me, then I've acceded the argument already because it's, to me, not what Scripture is designed to be. I understand this as communicating to people that had a view that was pre-scientific. That's okay. it doesn't, that, to me, does not make Scripture full of errors. It just makes it understandable to those that it was originally written to, and I think it had to be that for it to be genuine revelation. So, that's where I stand on science and Scripture. That's my view. That's where I've come to through lots of wrestling with this stuff, and if you're at a different place, I'm okay with that. I've probably been at that place in one point in time, and you may say, well, you left. You should go back to that place, Brett. Well, maybe, but this is where I am right now, and I can only teach what I'm thinking about this stuff right now. But to me, this is the understanding that best makes sense of the Old Testament as it is written, and to recognize that, you know what? I don't think God could have communicated in any other way to understand, to, for his people to understand than to work within the culture and accommodate himself to that culture. So don't throw out your Bible because it's not teaching 21st century science. It was never meant to do that. Have confidence in it, interpret it correctly, and get to know God through what he's revealed about himself to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, this has just been kind of my understanding of how your word and how science fits together. It's not gospel truth, but this is where I've come out. And I just pray that you would lead and guide us to a place where we can have confidence in your word. And we can communicate that confidence to those that don't yet know you. Lord, use your word in our lives to help us to grow in our understanding of the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Transform us by your truth. Help us to see it. Help us to understand it. Help us to apply it to our lives. And it's in Jesus' powerful and precious name I pray. Amen.